Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm Mark Hamilton, your host, and today we'll take a look at Wyoming weather and what the Farmer's Almanac has to say. We'll look at the political happenings here in the state and we'll talk about political happenings of 2023 and also 1913. We'll look at the border war and also we'll look at two Wyoming Cowboys going head-to-head in NFL football. And finally, in our history section, we'll look at the POW camps of World War II here in the state of Wyoming. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy the show. Taking a look at Wyoming weather here on the 23rd day of January, our winter weather is, I tell you, this winter is getting a little old here in Wyoming, I can tell you that. We are expecting this coming weekend, we're going to start getting down into those really cold temperatures, negative numbers are coming back. We had those earlier before Christmas, we have snow on the ground, and we're going to get snow during the week. So it looks like maybe for the next few weeks, we're going to have some pretty good winter weather, and of course... We're not just the only one here in the U.S. It looks like there's other parts of the country that are just getting hit. I saw on TV a special about Mammoth where they're getting record amounts of snowfall. Just unbelievable. They're running out of spots to put snow. And these places are just unbelievable, the amount of snowfall. And I can only imagine what it's going to be like when spring comes. But here in Wyoming, our temperatures are this week. We're planning for some 20s during the week and then towards the weekend it starts to fall apart and into next week I saw some 13 15 belows highs during the day maybe if it gets up to zero we'll be lucky so again I've got logs getting ready for a backup for the heating system that we had trouble with earlier but here in Wyoming and also with this snow some of our areas are getting some pretty good snowpack but what's rather strange here in the Bighorns Bighorn Mountain area with that snowpack, they're actually down in the 90% of snowpack, so it's been kind of strange. It seems like these storms have kind of traveled a little bit farther to the south, and actually to the south of us here in Hot Springs County, Fremont County, between Riverton and Lander have gotten buried with snow. So we've got some areas that have got some pretty good snowfall, and then there's other areas that are looking for snow, and probably these storms coming up here later, I think, are going to hit these areas. So Again, as we always talk about here in Wyoming, it's that month of January, and it can't be long and dreary, and we're into that long, dreary, cold month right now. And according to the annual weather summary for from, I guess, the Farmer's Almanac, it says winter will be colder than normal, with the coldest periods in late November, early December, early and late January, and early and late February. Precipitation of snowfall will be above normal in the north and below normal in the south. The snowiest period will be in mid to late November, mid to late January, and early February. And that's kind of rather interesting. I look at this forecast that they have here, their January long-range forecast. And for the week ahead, it says a few snow showers cold, also flurries and cold through the end of the month. With January, the average temperatures will be below, 8 degrees below the average temperature of 20 for our region. 
and the first part of February, February 1st through the 9th, snowy periods and frigid. I don't like the word frigid. February 10th through 16th, flurry and, I guess, flurries and turning milder. 17th through 28th, snow showers and bitter cold. So here comes some more cold. And they're showing for the month of February an average temperature of 19, which is 9 degrees below average. So winter, I guess, isn't going to give up here in the state of Wyoming and here in the Rocky Mountain region. Today in political news here in the state of Wyoming, the legislature is in session. There's been quite a few bills that have come to the forefront, and a lot of these are in bringing national attention. There was Senate File 144 has been introduced, and it was along the lines of Chloe's law that the can't allow about not allowing the transitioning of children here in the state of Wyoming. That right now is is going through the Senate. I think there's been other places that they've done this, and I, I think there are other versions of, of this that have been discussed during the legislature. So that is moving on, uh, 144. Also, I guess one that they talked about before was the rank uh, choice voting. And the rank choice voting, if you've heard about in Alaska, has been a bone of contention. And I have not heard anybody have much positiveness to share with using that system. And it was uh, booted. So I guess that's one that we can don't have to worry about for now. I think that was good news. One other one that's back that I, that I saw in the House bill was uh, House Bill 119, medical prescription off-label. This one is going to would allow or require a pharmacist to fill a prescription. Now, a lot of this came up during COVID and stuff where doctors would prescribe a treatment and the pharmacist would not fill it. Now, if it's a approved medication and the doctor is prescribing it for a treatment they, with this bill, the pharmacist would have to fill this. So I think this is really important, and I hope this goes through. There's been some other states that have passed this, and um, I think it'll be good for our state. One that I saw, and this is kind of a side one because I got some older vehicles, was House Bill 154. And after 10 years, you have a permanent registration for your vehicle, so you aren't having to go to the courthouse all the time and get your plates done and such. With these older vehicles, that was pretty good. The other one we had, we talked about Wendy Schuler introducing the Fairness of Women in Sports last year, which is a bill that would prohibit the transgenders. 99.9% of this is a male that suddenly decides he wants to play in female sports. And so she has rephrased this. It's a little different version. It's pretty lengthy. And as we get through the legislature, as this develops, we'll go into a little bit more detail. And finally, there's also a bill that's been introduced, uh, House Bill 110, Juneteenth state holiday. And I've always been a little confused on Juneteenth, but it is getting introduced. I will tell you, I don't think that this will pass. I have some real questions on this. If I was going to be betting on this, I don't think this will gain much traction here in our state. But we'll keep on top of that. But it's rather interesting. We always like to talk about what has happened throughout the years in the state of Wyoming. And I ran across this article in the History of Wyoming by T.A. Larson. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I have referenced this quite a few times out of the History of Wyoming. It's just a treasure trove of Wyoming. But to talk about the legislature of 
1913, so 110 years ago. The leading Republican political reporter in Wyoming in 1913 was John Charles Thompson, Jr., who wrote for William C. Deming's Wyoming State Tribune in Cheyenne. Twenty-six years after the event, Thompson, in his old Wyoming column in the Wyoming State Tribune, described the 1913 legislative session as the most disorderly in Wyoming history. There were, recalled, conspiracies, counter-conspiracies, contests, cross, double-cross, and super-double-cross, shouting, tumult, riots, criminal charges, for more than a fortnight. The stage was set. And I just laugh at this when I start reading and hearing this about our political happenings. And I guess this is just part of politics, whether it's today in 2023 or in the early years of the legislature in 1913. Politics is not for the faint of heart. Taking a look at Wyoming sports, the Wyoming Cowboys were victorious on Saturday at the Dome of Doom. They took on the CSU Rams in the border war. They came out victorious. Yes, the Cowboys won 58-57. to What a crazy game it was. Cowboys had a lead, had a pretty good lead, and then just went cold, and CSU came back, and it came down to a free throw, won the game, and the Cowboys break a drought. They've been losing quite a few games, but it's always good to beat CSU. CSU's not having a great year themselves this year, but it's no matter what the records are of either team, it was good to see that the place was packed, a lot of excitement. And so maybe the Cowboys will get back on a winning track with this season. Not completely out of luck as far as any position, more or less. They're going to have to win the Mountain West Conference to go further. But uh, again, a win is a win is a win here in the border war. And the Cowboys take one from the Rams. Also in other Wyoming news, had a rather interesting matchup on Sunday afternoon. A couple of ex-Cowboys. Josh Allen of the Buffalo Bills and Logan Wilson of the Cincinnati Bengals went head-to-head in the semifinals of the AFC Championships. And unfortunately for the Buffalo fans and Josh Allen, great news for Logan Wilson and the Bengals. The Bengals came out on top. They were pretty dominant in the game. And rather interesting, the backstory of watching those two play. Of course, they were teammates on the Wyoming Cowboy teams in previous years and I guess the one difference is Josh Allen is from California. He was a graduate of the University of Wyoming where Logan Wilson is a born and raised. He is a Casper native and uh, so he has I guess a little bit more as far as being from Wyoming on his side and they always refer to him in his playing days and still refer to him as the governor and I think I saw article where Josh Allen says that he wouldn't be surprised if Logan Wilson retires someday and moves back to the state of Wyoming and ends up being the governor. So rather interesting. Somebody has to lose, but again, it was a big PR. They Quite a few times they talked about both players. So a lot of publicity for the Wyoming Cowboys football action over the weekend. So Logan Wilson continues on. And for our people from last year, remember that Logan Wilson was in the Super Bowl. So right now they've got one game to go. They played Kansas City, the Chiefs in Kansas City this coming Sunday. Overall, it was a good showing for our Wyoming Cowboys.
today in our history section, and this is something that I wasn't really familiar with, with the magnitude of it, and that's why I wanted to share it. It was operation of World War II POW camps here in the state of Wyoming. And this article that I'm referring to today came from Cheryl O'Brien, the 19 camps, World War II POWs in Wyoming. And reading into this article, during World War II, approximately 436,000 prisoners of war were held captive in the United States. The U.S. operated 155 large POW base camps and 511 branch camps across the country. Prisoners of war camps were established in every state except Vermont. In addition, there were POW camps in the U.S. territories of Alaska and Hawaii. 19 World War II prisoners of war camps operated in Wyoming. Prisoners included Italian, German, Australian, Czechoslovakian, Polish soldiers were part of the group that came here. The first POW camps in Wyoming were established in 1943. The two main POW camps were at Camp Douglas and Fort Francis E. Warren in Cheyenne. Prisoners at Fort Warren were generally confined to the military base. Camp Douglas and Camp Scottsbluff, Nebraska base camps provided prisoners for many smaller branch camps in Wyoming. Seventeen branch camps were established in Wyoming to provide seasonal agriculture and timber labor, critically needed due to the war-related labor shortages. Agricultural base camps operated at Basin, Beaver, Lovell, Powell, Worland, Riverton, Claremont, Wheatland, Lingle, Torrington, Veteran, Huntley, and Pine Bluffs, with prisoners working primarily in the sugar beet, potato, and bean fields. Timber camps operated at Dubois, Esterbrook in the Laramie Range above Douglas, Ryan Park in the Snowy Range east of Saratoga and Centennial. Relations among prisoners and between prisoners and guards were generally good, but there was still a war on. In camps housing Germans, especially at the larger camps such as Camp Douglas, there were problems associated with the strong Nazi leadership. Extreme pro-Nazi leaders harassed and even attacked non-Nazi POWs. When camp officials were alerted to a potential dangerous prisoners or safety concerns, they added security, including segregation of hostile prisoners. At Camp Douglas, a German non-commissioned officer was found hiding in the attic of an old camp building. It was reported that he was hiding from the pro-Nazi camp leaders. Afterwards, additional security measures were taken, including the use of guard dogs and installation of double fences around the prisoner compounds. The camps were ministered by the U.S. Army Regional Service Command, which operated under the Army Service Force and Provost Marshal General Office, in accordance with the U.S. War Department policies. In 1942, there were nine service commands established in the United States. Wyoming was part of the 7th Service Command. Prisoners were transferred across state lines between base camps and base camps within the Regional Service Command. In January of 1943, the U.S. government authorized the use of POW labor on military installation. A program to make prisoner labor available to civilian employers was implemented the following fall through the cooperation of the War Department, the War Manpower Commission, and the War Food Administration. POW branch camps were set up to provide prison labor more efficiently to area farms and timber operations. Civilian employers worked with the local military officials and the Department of Agriculture Extension Service to use prisoners of war labor. 
the POW labor program benefited in local industries and provided substantial revenue for the U.S. Treasury. The farmers and the logging companies paid for the POW labor at a rate equal to what would have been paid to local civilians. It was a necessity for the employers, even though they had to pay because the prisoners' labor was so desperately needed. By June of 1949, contractors had paid $22 million into the U.S. Treasury for POW labor. State, county, and other agricultural and timber industry groups appreciated and acknowledged the importance of the prisoners' work. Both the agriculture and the timber industry were labor-intensive. At Camp Douglas, POW named Guthel wrote on that the work on the farms was unfamiliar and therefore difficult for many of them. However, he said their accomplishments were recognized by the American Army and civilians, as we read with pleasure and satisfaction in our last camp newspaper. In September of 1949, Director Albert Bowman, Wyoming Agricultural Extension Service, wrote to Governor Lester Hunt that Wyoming's labor requirements for agriculture would not have been met without the prisoners of war. The Geneva Convention of 1929 specified that prisoners were to be at all times humanely treated and protected. Officers were exempt from physical labor and received the same pay they were previously entitled to. Non-commissioned officers were only required to perform supervisorial work. For each day that they worked, enlisted prisoners were paid 80 cents in script with which they could purchase items in the camp canteen. Many POWs saved part of their pay to take home with them after the war. One former camp veteran POW reported that he had saved close to a thousand marks by the time he returned to Germany. The Geneva Convention provided that prisoners were not allowed to do unhealthy or dangerous work and their daily hours cannot be excessive. POWs were allowed one day off per week, preferably on Sunday. Construction and operation of the POW camps also followed Geneva Convention guidelines. In Wyoming, six branch camps used former civilian conservation corp camps and modified the barracks for prisoner use. Other camps modified existing buildings, constructed temporary buildings, or housed camp residents in tents. U.S. military staff and POWs had separate mess halls and sanitary facilities. The Geneva Convention guideline also specified that food rations of the prisoners be equivalent in quality and quantity to that of the U.S. Army personnel at the camps. However, food and other shortages in the U.S. led to rationing and revised menus as the war progressed, including significant changes at the Wyoming POW camps. In 1945, a food conservation program was implemented nationwide to help build up the U.S. food reserves depleted by the needs of the armed forces for that purpose, but also to help refute charges that the Army was pampering the prisoners. The War Department reduced POW menu of meat and other food in short supply. In addition, many people believe the new food policy at the camps was in response to late in the war discoveries of Germany's poor treatment of American prisoners and of the concentration camps. Changes for the prisoners in Wyoming included substitution and reduction in meat rations and in dairy products, margarine instead of butter, for example. Especially after the war in Europe ended on May 8, 1949, according to POW camp documents, U.S. Army colonel from the medical department from Omaha, Nebraska, made a tour of all branch camps in Wyoming during the summer of 1945 to check on the health problems and the food adequacy for the prisoners of war. The food shortage led camp officials and prisoners to use alternatives to meat. According to Camp Dubois Commander Lieutenant Harlemert, by September 1945, chicken was served 
about once a week, that there was no beef or pork in the POW rations and very little of other meats. Arlemert reported that the prisoners resorted to trapping to supplement their food supply. Game included porcupines, snowshoe hares, and grouses. Prisoners also shared a generous sample of porcupine meat, he noted, including a front leg and a piece of a liver prepared by a P.W. Cooks, the same way his mother used to fix Hassenpfeffer, a traditional German stew made with rabbit. He remarked that it was a delicious dish, and he enjoyed it very much. Former P.O.W. Johann Philhofer shared the memories of this time at Camp Dubois, prisoner in 2017 interview. He said that the guards shot wild game even though they knew it was poaching and there was a penalty if they got caught. The guards shared venison and other meat with the prisoners. The prisoners helped to process the game kitchen. U.S. enlisted men at Camp Dubois also found ways to supplement their own and their officers' rations, catching fish in nearby lakes and streams. Harlemert said that the Army staff enjoyed fresh fish about three times a week when conditions were favorable. Civilian employers supplemented the POW's food, even though it was not required, often specifically discouraged. Many Wyoming residents of Italian and German heritage shared common customs and food preference with the prisoners they employed. Employers often prepared special meals or snacks for the POWs working on their farms in the timber camps to show their appreciation for the prisoners' hard work. A farm family that employed POWs to work in their sugar beet fields southwest of Lovell, treated the prisoners with compassion, even though they had lost their son during the war. The prisoners were served strawberries mixed with precious rationed sugar and cream for dessert. The POWs lined up, bowed, and said danke after they finished eating. Some local farmers even brought prisoners to their home for Sunday dinners. The organization of intellectual and sporting pursuits by the prisoners of war was also encouraged by the Geneva Convention. The prisoners took part in many activities during their free time, especially at the base camps. They played musical instruments, performed in theatrical presentation, watched movies, read books from the camp libraries, played sports, and took a variety of courses. Religious services were also provided at many of the camps. A Camp Douglas POW wrote that the camp activities gave structure to their free time and helped many of them overcome homesickness. The prisoners wrote essays, poems, memoirs, and correspondence sharing first-hand accounts of their everyday lives as a prisoner of war. They expressed concern over their families, homeland, and hopes for the future, and many of their essays and poems were shared in the POW camp newspaper. They also created murals, sketches, paintings, wood-carved items, and sculptures as an outlet for their thoughts and their perception. The Western-themed murals painted on the walls at the Camp Douglas Officer Club State Historical Site are examples of the Italian's POW art. Cultural exchange occurred between the POWs and many of the people they came in contact with. Close relationships sometimes developed among the prisoners, U.S. Army personnel, and local employers. Several prisoners made gifts for their new Wyoming friends or to show their appreciation to employers for their kindness while working on farms or in the timber camps. At a recent presentation about the Wyoming POW camps, a woman brought a plaque of the Blessed Mary made by an Italian POW to share with the audience. The prisoner gave the plaque to the woman's father who had served as Camp Douglas as an interpreter to the Italian prisoners there. The Wyoming POW camps continued operating for several months after the war ended. 
with Japan's surrender on September 2nd of 1945. Agricultural branch camps stayed open until the fall harvests were completed. Some branch camps operated into the early 1946. Fort Francis E. Warren was the last Wyoming POW camp to close in late 1946. But a rather interesting time here in the history of the state of Wyoming. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy our podcast. As per the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for Wyoming.